I was just reading an article actually sent over by my Vietnamese office on one of the reasons Vietnam has been so successful with the COVID-19 is that they're using kind of their state spy apparatus. And so whenever anybody gets the virus, they can kind of track exactly who they come in contact with and the <laughs> third contact and the fourth contact and everything. So it finally makes sense. You know, their spy network is so good that <clears throat> they can track yeah. everybody down. So. Oh, man. You know what, though? It's like at times like this, they kind of like, hmm, spy network. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, I'm Aaron Miller, and this is How to Help, a podcast about having a life and career of meaning, virtue, and impact. This is season one, episode 10, Impact Investing. How to Help is sponsored by Merit Leadership, home of the Business Ethics Field Guide. Money makes the world go round, or so it said. Of course, the earth doesn't actually need money to keep spinning. In fact, it's a funny phrase when you think about it, because all the money in the world couldn't even stop it from spinning. The only thing that saying reveals is how bad human beings are at thinking in scale. Let me illustrate another issue of scale as it relates to money. We really have no effective way to appreciate how much money there is in the world. Part of the problem is in how we define money, but part of it is also that the numbers are mind-numbingly big. For example, all the money invested in equities, like stock ownership of a company, was $95 trillion at the end of 2019. That's around 237 times more dollars than there are numbers of stars in the galaxy. Bonds, another common way to invest money, accounted for $106 trillion. Global real estate is more than double either of these, and debt generally is many times more than that. So if there's so much money out there, why do so many people go without? Well, there's no simple answer to that question, but part of the problem, again, is how badly we understand the scale involved. There aren't good measures of how much money is donated to charitable causes globally, but in the U.S. last year, people gave about $450 billion. That's a lot of money, but it's not nearly as much as it seems. For example, that number is only 0.5% of what's invested in equities. Put another way, the amount donated to charity each year is almost certainly less than one-tenth of 1% 1 of all the money in the world. So how do we get more money to the people who need it? Well, one idea is just to try and convince people to donate more. But for as long as we've measured it, Americans, who, by the way, are among the most generous donors globally, donate an average of 2% of their income. Wars, taxes, inventions, and recessions tend to not move that number very much. There's likely not a lot that we can do to increase donations. So what if we instead found a way to use invested money to help people? We could, for example, invest in companies that improve conditions for the poor or deliver healthcare to hard-to-reach places. This is called impact investing, and it's a field that's growing rapidly. My guest today is Jeff Woolley, known as Chester to his friends and colleagues. He's the managing partner of an investment firm called Patamar and a pioneering impact investor who has seen firsthand the growth of this field over the last two decades. 
He and I served together on the board of University Impact, where students learned the ropes of impact investing with real money and deals. To get to know Chester, it's important to know how he got his start. Being a great impact investor means being good at understanding the things that drive impact. But it also means being a good investor. And that's where Chester got his start. Right out of college, I went to work for a big financial services company and make a long story short, I was supposed to do kind of white papers about fixing different divisions. And the first division I looked at was a equipment leasing company, which, you know, is a terribly exciting industry. And the portfolio wasn't doing well. And make a long story short, that it was supposed to be a triple A portfolio, but there was quite a few startups in it. So as part of the due diligence, I went to go see these startups and it turned out that there were deposits to do with these debts. But but all the CEOs had said, if you release these deposits that you have, because we need the cash, we can give you equity in the company. And to make a long story short, that basically became the kind of impetus to what is now called venture debt, in which I went in and said, maybe instead of just doing equity, we should go into these venture-backed startups and provide debt lines, in, in this case, leasing lines, and basically by accident created, called Venture Debt Today, and I guess many people call me the founder of Venture Debt, which certainly was not what I started off to do the six weeks into my career. If you're not familiar with the finance world, you'd be surprised to learn how very young professionals can quickly control quite a bit of wealth. That was the case for Chester, too. It's a world where good ideas and hard work can get you pretty far pretty fast. Actually, there was a very funny story that one of the venture capitalists that I worked with all the time, a guy named Alan Patrickoff, who's still around today, said to me, hey, I'm going to go ahead and do this deal with one of the portfolio companies that we've been working with. But... I don't understand why you work for this company and just don't do this on your own. Right. And I was, and I was a bit confused. And I said, well, <laughs> what's the question? And he goes, why do you work for them? And I said, well, because they, they pay me. <laughs> and he goes, well, I know, but I mean, why don't you just start your own firm? You know, that's how all of us have our own firms. You know that. And all the other guys know you also pretty well. I've talked to them before. And I said, yeah, but you know, being 24 and going out to go ask for money from New York life and metropolitan life, probably they're not going to be really keen on just giving me a, you know, 20 and $30 million chunks of money. And he ended up then giving me a long story short, a half million dollars. And I went out and raised my first fund with a partner, which I'd been working with. And that got me even further into venture where we didn't do just venture debt. We also did equity and that kind of lasted through another 20 years in a firm. So that sounds like the kind of career that you could just ride into the sunset. Why did Chester change to impact investing? Becoming the managing partner or CEO of your own firm when you're 24 sounds all very impressive and cool. But as the firm grows bigger and the more assets you manage, your job gets kind of worse, if that makes sense. Because instead of me doing investments and working with entrepreneurs, which is really what I love and to do, I was getting to do cool things like talk to regulatory authorities and attorneys and limited partners or investors. And then we, you get to referee all the fights between all your partners and your associates and all your staff as you open more offices. And pretty soon I figured out, uh, you know, let's say 15, 20 years later that I spent 90% of my time doing stuff that I didn't even like. 
I probably wasn't terrible at it, but I didn't, <laughs> I just didn't want to do it. And by that point, I had enough money for McDonald's most days. I then said, you know, what would I like to do in life? And so I guess you could call that your classical midlife crisis. And instead of buying a, a red Corvette or something, I decided that maybe I should, you know, get a little better karma. And that's kind of where I started saying, you know, I'd like to do something philanthropic, but to be honest with you, I don't know how to dig a ditch very well. I don't speak a foreign language. And in those cases, to me, it was all about the Peace Corps and, right. you know, going to do something like that. And I said, I really don't have any skills. You know, it's kind of going back to when I'm in college. It's like, I don't know anything I can do in the nonprofit world that people would be, you know, think is good. And uh, so that kind of led to this whole search about, you know, getting karma into, you know, maybe the skills that I had. So. So talk about that search, because I've known a lot of people who have come to, to that stage in their life where they, they sort of have this first career being successful at, at something that's much more traditional. I mean, not that the pioneering you did was traditional, but, but it was in finance, right? And it was, right. A, it was a path that became well-trodden with time. How did the search go for you shifting from venture capital into what now has become a pretty robust career and impact? Well, to be honest with you, it was a little bit serendipitous. The good thing about venture capital, which I love, is that it's almost like going to university every day because everybody who comes to visit you are generally the the entrepreneurs are, are the experts in their fields. And, and so over the period of years, you get to know all sorts of people that are unrelated. Just as a funny aside, I always say that I can always do well in any kind of cocktail conversation because at one point or another, almost every object in the room I probably know a little bit of something about because someone has presented a business plan to me on how is a pen made or, you know, what's the economics to a framing business or how do you get HVAC systems to work, et cetera. It almost becomes a little bit spooky because I have a pretty terrible memory. So I just know enough to be dangerous about it. (laughs) And I always used to joke that it was kind of like the for-profit University of Education. And I mean, I, I was very fortunate. I mean, early on, this is a great story that when I didn't know a lot about semiconductors and Gordon Moore was actually raising some money for a startup, he ended up sitting in a room with me on, on a blackboard for two hours describing to me how semiconductors worked. Oh my and little, <laughs> little at the time did I know that he was the father of <laughs> really, right. you know, the, the modern the semiconductor in many ways. And, and I would just use those as, as some of those great experiences that you have as a venture capitalist. I find that the people who know things the best can teach you very quickly things that are essentially very difficult. And nor, by the way, would I ever tell you that I can design a semiconductor because I can't even barely understand one, but that's... That's there. So, I love this idea that Chester just turned to experts who could teach him what he needed to know. The truth is that when it comes to social impact, far too many people assume that they know how very complicated things work. And then they charge in and make a mess of things. Of course, this makes it sound like Chester just talked to some experts and got to work. But it was a more circuitous path than that. Well, I mean, honestly, my first foray, I was kind of led towards uh, politics, which at the time I knew very little about. It seemed like an interesting concept via some of the contacts and, uh, and some friends. I ended up knowing the chairman of the Gore campaign. And then when he found out that I was going to 
step back from my venture firm, you know, before I know it, I was the vice chair of the Gore campaign for, you know, some period of time. Now there's 24 vice chairs, so that's not a big deal. And I had a very specific job getting corporate endorsements, but it became very clear to me that, that, Politics was not something, no offense to any of those folks, but this just wasn't something I was terribly interested in. It, yeah. it seemed to be everything was about compromise and about, I don't know, mediocrity sometimes. And uh, to me, I like to kind of just see ideas and get them accomplished and move on. So there, thereafter, I met up with this group of like-minded people who were kind of searching for not the second part of their lives, but unless in addition to their lives. And that actually led to a group called Unitas, which has become quite well known within the impact and the, particularly in the microfinance fields. Unitas has a very interesting history. It's one that reflects Chester's interest in trying out new ideas. This is just a, a great story of a bunch of people who said, we love nonprofits and we love that they really help people. And we give checks to them sometimes as donors, but there's something missing when it comes to accountability of whether they're going to fulfill those promises. And so we kind of said, you know, we'd love to have the intersection of where the philanthropic side and the for-profit side kind of meets where you could have that accountability, but still have those great people and all the cool ideas to, you know, change the world's climate or help people or do whatever it might be. We said as a group, could we basically take our skills, which tended to be on the business side, and then combine them with some great um, social folks who had been doing great projects and just make them more efficient and hopefully then they could affect the lives of more people. And that's really how I today consider what my main focus within this field, which has become known as impact investing. At the time we did this, by the way, impact investing wasn't even a word yet. And, uh, you know, later, I think it's only five or six years later that when I first heard it in some interview with me, I said, wow, that's an interesting term. I guess, <laughs> I guess that's kind of what we do. The group at Unitas decided to work in the field of microfinance. If you're not familiar with it, the idea of microfinance is to provide small loans to low-income people as a means to help them grow businesses or otherwise improve their livelihoods. The idea was pioneered by groups like Finca and the Grameen Bank. Dr. Muhammad Yunus, who founded the Grameen Bank, went on to win a Nobel Peace Prize for his work. And the day we then chose microfinance, which at the time, interesting enough, there was almost 3,000 microfinance banks in the world, which we were fascinated to learn. I mean, because I had heard yeah. very little about microfinance, and this is about 2,000. And... Then when you look closer at them, they were run by terrific people. I mean, people who you'd love to spend some time with and, and things. But then when you look through them, they didn't do very many loans. I mean, they might have had a few hundred or a few thousand, but these loans were 100 or $200. And you kind of realize that the interest rates on the loans had to be pretty high because they would have overhead costs, but not that many clients per se. And so we actually said, you know, maybe what we should do is to say to them, why don't we kind of use you as the entrepreneurs, but if we can give you good capital and good people to advise, if you want to just grow, and so that you have, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of clients, then all these people would be helped through microfinance. And you could basically lower your interest rates because your money is cheaper. 
And that's really the whole concept of what we did for the next 10 years from 2000 to 2010. And, and we're actually relatively successful uh, in doing it. So Unitas became one of the world's first microfinance accelerators. They would find well-run microfinance institutions and help them grow with money and management help. It was not unlike venture capital in the world of startups. The problem with this idea is that the culture of venture capital mixing with nonprofits is like trying to mix oil and water. Chester and the Unitas team consistently saw a culture backlash within the nonprofit space. Well, to be honest with you, I didn't really know that, you know, there were these cultures and people from a social background and a nonprofit background, I found were oftentimes very skeptical of somebody that was a venture capitalist, probably rightfully so in many ways, but they kind of viewed us as kind of carpetbaggers, I guess you could say. So it took us some time to kind of address many of their issues and kind of earn their trust. I remember being on a panel in some conference in Switzerland and uh, the other three panelists essentially had nonprofit backgrounds, you know, or with some kind of development agencies. And then there was me. And one of the, the guys, a uh, very nice guy, and we actually became friends later, basically had said, well, you know, my worry is that you have now capitalists coming into the markets <laughs> and taking our, <laughs> our ideas and corrupting them through that whole basis, <laughs> it was clearly a swipe at me, you know, standing there. And, and he then went on and then they kind of piled on. And at the very end of it, I said to them, well, I just want to, first of all, tell you that I am probably the only person here that doesn't get paid. <laughs> so, <laughs> so if you're worried that, if you're worried that money is what's motivating me here, you know, I'm not getting anything economically for this. So if that was your definition of capitalist, uh, that's not really what I'm here for. And that yeah. then, of course, made the audience laugh quite a bit. And they said, I think that more people should basically say that the good thing about people with business skills is that we know certain aspects and we certainly rely upon other people to have other skills. And that's really what a good venture capitalist does is really is more of a conductor of an orchestra rather than actually playing all the instruments. Unitas became very successful. Its investment in a group called SKS was among the most notable. Based in Hyderabad, India, SKS, with help from Unitas, went from just 50,000 borrowers and a net worth of about $3 million, to millions of borrowers and a net worth of about $1.5 billion. And this was all in about eight years. Making this happen involved converting SKS from a nonprofit to a for-profit that could take investor money. And this is because the amount of available investor money is, as we noted at the beginning, many, many times larger than the amount of donor money out there. And more dollars can mean more good work is done. The challenge is to get more investors thinking this way. Even small changes in investing behavior could make a huge difference in the world. What Unitas experienced trying to get investors to think this way continues to be a challenge today. Chester has ideas on how this can change for the better. But, but to us, I think the main issue here was, and still remains, that we need to make impact investing as an asset class. And when I say an asset class, is that if you look at the world's money, only about 10% of it goes to donations. Right. The other 90% are in you know, the capital markets. 
And the way that the system works, I learned from venture capital very quickly, is that you have these very smart, intelligent, you know, in boards and endowments and pension funds and insurance companies and, and whatever. And they always say, okay, how much are we going to put into public equities? How much are we going to put into bonds? How much into real estate? How much into gas and oil? How much into forest? How much into venture capital? But if you, if you don't have an allocation, then that's the one way not to get money from them. I guess you could put it that way. Right. So, yeah. so, I would, so I said to people, we have to get to the table to get one of those allocations because even if you were allocated, you know, from CalPERS, the state of California's pension fund, even if you were allocated, let's say, 1% or 2% to impact, you're talking about billions of dollars. And at that point, the way that these institutions work is that you go from the, having to ask them for money to them having staff that says, hey, we have to deploy $4 billion this year in impact. So tell us who you are and we'd like to invest. And what we haven't been able to do yet in, in impact is we haven't been able to create this demand from institutions that they need to basically invest in this area. And I do think that that will actually occur, but it's actually going much slower than I would have, would have hoped for, you know, 10 or 15 years ago. Yeah, I want to talk about that more, but I want to reflect for a minute on the SKS IPO. An IPO is short for initial public offering. It's where a company starts to sell its shares on a public stock exchange. In this case, SKS decided to sell its shares on India's national exchange, and they ended up raising $350 million from investors. It was a historic but divisive moment in the history of microfinance. This moment reflects some of the resistance that impact investing still confronts now. I mean, after it happened, it got a lot of press. And like you indicated, there were a lot of people who were disappointed. In fact, Mohammed Yunus, who won the Nobel Peace Prize, came out with a New York Times editorial criticizing it. I mean, from your perspective, there are all these borrowers now who have access who wouldn't have if we didn't do this. How did it feel to have Dr. Yunus coming out as a critic of what you guys were doing? Well, I don't understand the New York Times on not taking my credibility compared to Dr. Eunice's personally, but I had yeah. to get over that quite quickly. So <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, I your, think your peace that, prize is coming. I know my my Nobel Peace Prize is on this way. No, I think that what we actually had learned, and I think not just we, but maybe a whole industry, is that. The thing that, that they were worried about was had this basically just become a bank. And what we have learned and what I have learned personally is that if you basically try to make things, quote unquote, social at all times, then oftentimes the good thoughts oftentimes turn into more expensive thoughts. So I'll give you an example within microfinance is that many microfinance banks said, Yes, we'll give everybody a $500 loan, but along with this, we also want to provide with them all sorts of learning, whether it be in inclusive finance or whether it should be in legal advocacy. We'd also like to teach kind of like children rearing, et cetera, et cetera. All really good purposes to kind of particularly teach a lot of the women what they need to. But from a financial perspective, each one of those things that you teach has a cost to it. And so what was happening was that instead of their 
their interest rate being competitive with what a regular customer, i.e. a a middle-class or an upper-class person would have, their interest rate where the poor would always be, you know, 10, 15, 30, 50% higher. And then what I learned from the poor was that when I was speaking with them is that they just like to be treated like everybody else. And why can't they have an interest rate that's the same as everybody else? And, and later on, as I was talking with some of these women, I just realized that maybe we're being a little bit too ivory tower about this. Yeah. Why, don't, why don't we concentrate on making their, their loan and their interest that's charged the lowest possible, as most banks would, and then basically maybe bring in nonprofits to teach them these other things. Now listen closely to this next part, because it's chock full of wisdom. Everyone, nonprofit leaders and impact investors, need to internalize this lesson that Chester is about to teach. And I think that that's really the best of both worlds in my perspective, is that have the experts basically really work on driving down the cost. And this comes to a point, Aaron, that I always make to people, is that the poor always basically get the worst products at the highest prices, and they almost always have the most disrespectful service. And I learned that over and over again. And if I was going to say that I learned anything in my life as I went into impact, and it was that these people are smart and they might not have the education, but everything is stacked against them all the time. So if you basically just want a cup of rice, why does their rice always have to be more expensive than I get, you know, down at the Safeway? It's just essentially not fair sometimes. And that's really how I then have become a much bigger believer in impact is to say to entrepreneurs, anytime you can make a product that is high quality, that is of a fair price, i.e. comparable to anybody, you know, rich or poor, and that you treat the people as a customer, not as somebody who is taking something for you and should be grateful to you, then you're, you're going to be very successful because there are literally billions of people in that category that want that. And that's really what I would say is the, is the impetus to how I define impact investing is, is to basically find products and services that are great, that, that the cost of them are fair. And then the last one I think is the most important is that people be respected and I cannot tell you how many times I have learned by I thinking, you know, that these people should just be grateful for what we're giving them. But they're very proud people, just like any one of us is. They don't want to have a handout, most of them. They basically want to earn their own way and, and be treated just like everybody else is. And so that's something I really try to emphasize to people is that treating people with decency and a service mentality from a business perspective, that they are customers is really, I think, some of the most philanthropic things you can do. And now for a word from our sponsor. Every organization has a culture around ethics, whether or not it's deliberate. As a leader, if you're not cultivating the right ethical environment, You're taking your chances that the people around you will make wise choices. At Merit Leadership, we help companies of any size do regular exercises to build a deliberate culture of ethics. Our exercising ethics program reflects the reality that culture comes from what we do together, not from looking at a screen on our desk. 
Whether you work in a small team or a company with thousands of employees, we provide engaging ethics exercises that get people talking and sharing their values. To learn more, click the link in the show notes or visit MeritLeadership.com. The SKS story was not a simple success. The bank faced some big challenges soon after its IPO, with government regulation and a crackdown on microfinance lending generally. But it survived and has continued to grow. It still helps millions of borrowers get access to the funding that they need. And it's still a success story of impact investing, even if it was a bumpy one. But despite big accomplishments like this, impact investing and its power to accelerate change is still obscure to most people and misunderstood by many of those who do know about it. I actually think that that perception is perhaps the largest one, which mm-hmm. is kind of strange to think about, but it, it, impact is still in this strange world. That, first of all, I would say a majority of people don't know what impact investing is. But if you then ask the average person who knew what impact was, I think they would probably think it was was either philanthropy, but just kind of had entrepreneurs associated with it or something similar to that. And what needs to change is that people need to view that we have these arguably four to five billion people who are not getting proper goods and services. And so entrepreneurs who focus on getting them better goods and services are inherently, in my viewpoint, impactful because they're now starting to get things that that they couldn't, or they're actually creating income opportunities for these people to, you know, have a better life going forward. So how does the world of impact investing now get more persuasive to more investors where they see impact capital for what it is and what it can do, not just for them as investors, but also obviously for the world? Well, the first thing you have now benchmarks, going back to the example that you have of SKS, when I was raising money in 2004 to invest in the equity of the company, the first question would say, well, has anybody ever exited from one of these and aside from a, a small Mexican bank, there was literally no no data that anybody could actually do this. That's always going to make it very difficult to, to do. I think in today's world, things have changed because there are now more benchmarks. So we now have data that says, yeah, impact funds oftentimes return just as well as traditional venture capital funds. Impact uh, entrepreneurs have become just as viable and oftentimes as large as traditional entrepreneurs. And so those are some of the things that I think will basically drive more people to this business that have the capital. Then the second thing is I think that we could also attract more people who basically want to do something in the world, but for some reason believe that this is all about philanthropic issues. And so if we can kind of change that perception too, that's really going to help us. So it's kind of exits, benchmarks, and and perception. You only get strong returns on investments when you have strong businesses to invest in. And here we confront another misconception. Most people think that it all comes down to having a really good idea, like coming up with Airbnb or Uber or Instagram. But good ideas are actually quite common. What's rare is a good entrepreneur. Good venture capitalists, we don't really think about ideas. We think about entrepreneurs. And that could also go back to this idea 
the thing that's holding back not just impact investing, but all good venture capital is the amount of good entrepreneurs you have. Being an entrepreneur has become quite cool. But in my perception, there aren't that many real entrepreneurs in this world. So finding the great social entrepreneur is really special. Listen to Chester describe a favorite company called Vindia. And so one of the, the great things is to find somebody who is, and in the case of a company called Vindia, which is based in India, this was a, a married couple. And if you invest in venture capital, one of the first things that you generally know is do not invest in married couples <laughs> because <laughs> you don't want to take on personal household issues into a entrepreneurial right. venture. But in India's case, this was a vision, particularly of the, uh, the woman in the relationship, Rahitha, is that she really wanted to basically work in India with people of what is called disabled people, where she would say that they're differently abled. It became very popular and still remains popular that in India, you have these things what we call BPOs. They're basically business processing outsourcers. And so what they've said is, why don't we take these people and turn their disabilities into strengths? So for example, they have a little bit more than 2,000 people with some types of disabilities. For example, people that are deaf tend to see a lot better or particularly see detail a lot better. So many of the accounts that they've taken on for the deaf are people who work on websites and refocusing um, and re-imaging photos, et cetera, where candidly they do a much better job than the average person. And people who are blind tend to be better listeners um, than the average person. So those people actually do a lot of the customer in-calling, you know, those service callers that you oftentimes have on the phones, in which they then take those calls. And people that have physical disabilities, i.e. that they have a problem moving, they tend to be more patient. And we generally have them do a lot of the back office work that we do for banks and, and paperwork. The long and short of it is, is that in just a couple, three years, they've been able to build a company that has more than $10 million worth of sales. It's very profitable. Almost every one of their employees is this is the first time that they've ever been employed. And they've gone from a net kind of burden upon their families to being the primary breadwinners for many of them. And to me, the thing I love when you go kind of pitch this to a company that needs to do an outsourcing, how easy it is to say, why don't you use a company that uses people that are differently able that will give you a better service that will actually change their lives. And you can even use it to know that you're really, you know, giving your customer the best experience, plus you're actually helping people. So anyway, I, I actually love India, as you can tell. And uh, yeah. I think it's a very, it's, a, it, it's one of those areas that literally everybody wins across the board. And uh, the company, we hopefully is gonna be to another 5,000 people are gonna be joining here in the next two years. And, uh, you know, if you just think of the number of lives that it's changing, it's, it's amazing. So finding good entrepreneurs is the secret. Listen to the way Chester answered when I asked him about the best opportunities that are out there in impact investing. So I don't want you to give up any trade secrets with this question, right. but is there any low hanging fruit out there in impact investing that you think just needs more capital? Like these are sort of deals that are totally obvious to you that for whatever reason aren't attracting investors yet. I don't think that anything is, I would say low-hanging fruit 
to me, the low hanging fruit is really, and I hate to do this, but just go back to the entrepreneurs. I think that there's not enough good entrepreneurs historically. And if you find a good entrepreneur, that's your low hanging fruit. And what you what you do find is a lot more entrepreneurs. And this is something maybe for people here in the U.S. and in Europe. But some of the people that are being educated in U.S. and European universities are going back and tend to be great entrepreneurs. This particularly is the case in Vietnam, particularly the case in Indonesia. Uh, India is the same way. These people, you know, kind of have the best of both worlds. They've learned how to play the game and what, what's expected from investors, but they've also gone back with that zeal to do those things. If you can follow those people and see what they're interested in changing, that could be the low-hanging fruit. This makes sense. The entrepreneurs who grew up in these countries, who know the problems firsthand, will know best how to tackle them. This is a challenge because social entrepreneurship is especially popular with American college students. They see the world's problems and they want to rush in and help. There's nothing wrong with this desire, but many of them lack the right kind of expertise that comes from living with the problems that they're trying to solve. There are a lot of right. college-age students, Americans, I should say, <laughs> that want right. to go into, you know, that want to be social entrepreneurs. You, you work mostly with international entrepreneurs. What advice would you have for Westerners that, that want to build the next great socially innovative company? Well, I think that there's a couple of different things. If you're going to build a great company, no matter impact or not, and you said that you're just the typical American and you're going to Vietnam to set it up, that it doesn't matter that you match the skin color or the ethnic background of the people that you're serving, but a majority of the people in your startup should, mm. not just because it's the right thing to do, but because they know the system better than anything else. So the first thing I would say to them is that don't try to come in and look colonial. It's fine to be there, but to use the local talent and, and the people from there. That's one thing. The second thing I generally advise most impact students is to go actually work at impact companies that are operating companies first and kind of learn from the, the things that go right and from some wrong. That really helps me when I then look at people uh, in their backgrounds if I'm going to invest in them to say, you know, aside from you being really intelligent, do you have any real experience in doing this? We used to kind of call it in venture capital, the old adage is that everybody can come and say, oh, I have this really cool boutique idea for a boutique hotel. But if you then ask the question, well, have you ever run a hotel before? And they say, well, not really. You basically said, well, it's completely fine to have this idea, but go find somebody who's actually run a hotel for the last 20 years. Yeah. And then together as a team, you could really build it. And so I always basically just say that people should always interconnect with others, whether it be from a local perspective or an industry perspective. And on a personal basis, and I think that going out and, and getting actively involved in an operating company before you actually come into the investing field is a, a really good help. What advice would you have for investors that want to go into impact? I think that what's really needed in today's world is to take risk. One of the things that's been particularly popular in 
a certain class of impact investors and mostly because of their financial advisors if they said why don't you go into and do deals with debt and not equity and there's all sorts of impact deals where you could you know lend money to microfinance banks or some inclusive finance um, companies and maybe you'll get a three or four percent rate of return but that's a good way to do it I'm not talking negatively about that, but candidly, that type of money is now pretty much available in the world <clears throat> from just traditional institutions. But what we, what's not available is money that you could actually lose very easily, but it's also out trying to challenge the world. It's the type of people that, you know, let's say going back to Vindia, this BPO company in India, I mean, when they first went to an investor and said, we want to create this company of a BPO of completely, you know, differently able people. If they wouldn't have had somebody who thought, oh, what's the chances? I mean, these guys are really nice and good people and et cetera, but what's the chances that they're going to be successful? I think a lot of people would say, no, no, it's way too risky for me if they were looking at it from a real return. Interesting enough, I think they could have probably raised the money from donations. It's, it's a humorous thing to me is that, I've literally had people before say, why don't we just give you a million dollars as a donation? And I'll say, well, you know, our structure isn't that way. We don't really just take donations. We take investments. And then a few, a few minutes later, they'll start then asking all of their specific questions and saying, well, <laughs> what's the rate of return? And what do you think the risk level of this, et cetera? Right. <laughs> and I, and I, I ironically sometimes turn to them and say, well, I think you just wanted to give it to me five, five minutes ago, and now you actually are acting like a, you know, a hard-knuckled investor. That's so true, though. <laughs> and that basically is something that is, as you have seen in Impact, is actually very common. And I think it's really just because people really have two hats. They either give money yeah. away and are very philanthropic, or they have the hat that they're going to be you know, a hard-nosed investor. So I think you need to have a little bit more flexibility in being that hard-nosed investor, but not necessarily saying I'll accept a low return, but in my viewpoint, I will accept high risk. Yeah. And that and because risk is to me means change. Low returns don't necessarily mean anything to me. Impact investing, in the end, is probably always going to struggle with the challenge of straddling two worlds. Life is a lot simpler when you only have to worry about a single priority, like profit or like impact. But the reality is that you're more likely to scale, to get really big, when you can find a way to balance both. The funny thing is that long-term, the idea is still about maximizing impact. It's the principal reason to do it, even if in the short term it means finding a way to attract investors. There are still billions of real people who need help. Chester thinks about them every single day. As you reflect back across all of this, are there are there one or two experiences that shaped you the most? I mean, that, that still stick with you as resonating and, and guiding you in the way you think about all of this? Yeah, I, you know, I think one of the reasons that, you know, for whatever, whatever guided me in this direction, I guess you could say whatever guided me to a higher karma here, was the idea to make me a better person by learning from people. I can still remember the time of being in small villages in India, and people are trying to explain to me about their businesses. And in many times, I'm a little bit slow about it, but even though they might not even be literate, 
I've had so many experiences where people explain these things to me. And what I find is that they just have great common sense. And the one thing I would actually say that what all of this has taught me, even to my regular investing career and traditional investing, is that the idea of common sense is highly underrated comparatively to all the other kind of measurements people are doing. And what these great experience of people who don't have the education or maybe even the reading skills or whatever, but what they do have is a lot of common sense. And I think that that's something that I have treasured and I've been taught common sense day in and day out by people. And, and hopefully I basically now use that. I remember talking with this very, I guess you could say upbeat woman who was starting a little store. And as I was talking with her, I just kind of wanted to know a little bit more about her background. And she basically said, well, she'd been married when she was 14, which in India is not a terribly, you know, uncommon thing. Unfortunately, her husband left her when she was 15. Mm. And in India, in particular, the villages is that once women are married, they're not allowed to remarry again. So essentially, you're, you're almost an old maid by the time you're 15. And in her perception, that's what she was. She already had a child and no education. I don't know that she was even literate. But what she did have was this great ability just to say, in my village, we don't have enough eggs. And then she basically gave me some very good examples why her eggs are needed in this village and how if she got so many chickens, she could basically meet that need and she would make, you know, so much money from it. And people like that, when you look back and say, here's somebody who probably didn't choose who they were going to marry, certainly didn't choose to be widowed by the time she was 15, certainly didn't, you know, always just choose to have a, a child. And then if you look at all the bias, you know, she's not allowed to walk into any bank because in, in most banks, it's still in India, poor people aren't allowed to go in. And if you look at how many things that she is coming up against and still basically has a cheerful attitude and explaining to me while how her egg strategy is working, I just thought to myself, you know, sometimes you think you have problems in the world, but here's this person who is persevering and prospering with a set of circumstances which, which are so much harder than mine, and she pays no due to it. And that's really why I guess I could say maybe at the end of this interview is that that's really what motivates me to do what I do, is that these people inspire me on a daily basis just really to remember that, that there's very few things that are terrible in the world. Things are just not good occasionally. Years ago, one of my uh, mentors taught me, and when I walked into him and I said, oh, this is terrible. And before he said another thing to me, he said, no, no, it's just not good. <laughs> and I remember saying, well, you, you haven't heard what I said yet. He said, yeah, but there's very few things that are terrible. And knowing you, it's just not good. <laughs> and, and, I, <laughs> and, I, <laughs> and I have actually used that the rest of my life, is that I, I, I say you know, to students or other employees, when they come in and thinking that things are terrible, I just tell them, no, it's just not good. And then we'll, we'll work it out. And people like this, I think the, 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 the people that you meet in impact are the people who basically know that things are just not good, uh, but they don't think that they're terrible. 
So Chester began by telling us how much he values the common sense of the poor entrepreneurs that he's known over the years. But did you notice how his comments also radiate optimism? Common sense and optimism are not two attributes that we typically associate with each other. If anything, common sense implies a more cynical perspective, one that isn't caught up in big dreams. But consider the young store owner in India who noticed that her village needed more eggs. Her common sense led her to see more, a better future for herself and her child. Chester is teaching us that the truly practical, common-sense view of the world is an optimistic one. We have plenty of reasons to believe that things may not be as terrible as we think, and that we can make them better. I'm so grateful to Jeff Woolley for talking with me in this episode. As you can tell from our conversation, he's had a unique and fascinating career. If you want to learn more about what he does, we have some useful links in the show notes. If you enjoy How to Help, please give us a positive review in your podcast app. It really helps us to reach more listeners. Also, be sure to subscribe so you can get future updates automatically. Next time, I'll have a conversation with Dr. Anton Howes. He's a historian who studies innovation. What is it that makes people, places, or moments in history especially inventive? And how can the answers to that question help us do more good today? Dr. House has a way of making the lessons of history especially practical, so be sure to come ready to put his insights to work. To stay up to date with How to Help, subscribe to our weekly email newsletter. Each edition recommends high-impact organizations and shares ideas for how to have more meaning in your work. You can subscribe or read the archives at how-to-help.com. We're grateful as always to Merit Leadership, who sponsors this podcast, and to our production team, which included Cindy Hall, Travis Stevenson, yours truly, and Eric Robertson, who did the editing and the music. Our music comes from the Pleasant Pictures Music Club. If you want to use their music in your projects, you can find a link and a discount code in our show notes. Finally, as always, thank you so much for listening. I'm Aaron Miller, and this has been How to Help.